Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Gurus, where every Friday we explore stories of international business and speak with industry leaders operating around the world. I'm your host, Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Thank you for joining us. As most of you know, we start each podcast with a running segment called Faux Pop Fridays, where we explore a funny blooper or mistranslation that does not quite convey the professional image that your organization wants to project. And since today's guest has been uh, in the fitness industry for many years, and uh, since athletes tend to go to bars after their sports matches, I thought I would reprise a blooper um, that was done a few podcasts ago, but is totally appropriate. And it was a sign in a Tokyo bar that said in English very simply, um, special cocktails for the ladies with nuts. Today's guest is Jean McCarthy. Jean has had a very varied career in both the athletic and outdoor industries, holding executive and C-suite positions at Nike, Jordan, Under Armour, and Reebok, as well as Timberland and Merrill. His most recent role was as president and CEO of ASICS Americas. He is currently the board chairman of Foot Balance Systems of Helsinki, Finland. Jean has served on several boards and has been a speaker at various universities and colleges, including USC, Marquette, Princeton, and the business schools both Columbia and Cornell. Welcome, Gene. I'm delighted that you've joined us. Well, Philip, uh, I'm happy to be with you, and I loved your little blooper in the beginning there. That made me chuckle. Yes, uh, very appropriate, especially for athletes <laughs> and everyone for that matter. So um, before we dive in, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about your personal background and how you grew up and how you gained your global experience. Yeah, first of all, I'm happy to be here, and um, it's exciting to be a part of the Global Gurus. But uh, let me give you, I'm an Irishman, so I have to do a storytelling on my background. Of course. I grew up, I grew up in the Bronx, New York, um, one of five kids, the oldest of five kids. And, of course, we had two parents, and uh, do the math, we lived in a two-bedroom apartment. Um, when I was 13 years old, I happened to see a cover of a, a magazine called Sports Illustrated, and there were two guys on the cover, a very vivid picture, two guys running. And I was just taken aback by the fact that A, it wasn't a baseball player or a football player. And B, I was really interested in these sinewy muscles and the, and the gr uh, grimacing faces. I read the article and it was about the dream mile. And at the time, in 1954, a guy named Roger Bannister was the first person to break the four-minute mile. So it had always become this very important milestone. So at 13 years old, I read the article twice. I told my family at dinner uh, that night, I made the declaration, I am gonna break the four minute mile. Of course, it was met with eye rolling and, oh, that's good, honey, good luck. Good. Eight years later, I'll fast forward. Um, I was about to graduate from Fordham University. Fordham University uh, is, is in the Bronx also. I, I could have gone to a hundred colleges on scholarship, but. I chose one eight miles from the house. I still don't know why. And, um, but well, I, I didn't break the four minute mile. I ran four minutes and three seconds. So I did something that young people don't do today. I wrote a letter and uh, that's a paper and a pen. And I wrote a letter to one of the guys on the cover of the magazine. And he actually wrote me back. And I said, I always wanted to break the four minute mile. I'm three seconds away. He invited me to move to Florida. His name is Marty LaCourie. And he owned a chain of uh, sporting goods stores, but he also was one of the greatest runners in the world still. And uh, he said he'd help me with my dream. So if it weren't for that magazine 
cover, I don't think that I ever would have gone to college because we couldn't afford it. And it wasn't something that I would, I was the first person in my Irish immigrant family to go to college. But because of that magazine, I got, I got a free education. I got to see the world, both as an athlete and then in business. And, uh, and it began for me a almost 40 year career working for some really fun athletic brands that I'm sure everybody's heard of. If anybody looks at my profile and they see all the companies I've worked for, I guarantee you every listener owns a pair of shoes by one of those companies I've worked for. So uh, that's a little bit about my background. That's fascinating. And you're probably right about every listener owning a pair of shoes by, by one of the companies you worked for. Um, tell us a bit about the, the sports fitness industry, or I guess the shoes industry, it's more the sports shoes industry, um, and how you got into that and what your experiences were. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, when I was, I was a fairly good runner. I made the U.S. Olympic trials, made the semifinals. And so I was sponsored by Nike at the time, which was, you know, a relatively fledgling company. It began in 1972, and this is only eight years later. And uh, I had a relationship with them. And then when I stopped running after the 1980 U.S. Olympic trials, a guy from Nike who uh, I used to work with called me up and he says, hey, do you know anybody with a marketing background? Um, that would like to be uh, a tech rep in the state of Florida. And I'm like, yeah, me, I live in the state of Florida and I have a marketing background. So I got my first job with Nike and it was probably a pivotal role for me because throughout the next 40 years, I used that as my, um, it's, it's my base for how I view things because I was out in the market and I was not only espousing the, the wonders of this new brand called Nike, but I was also taught to listen and to look. And, um, and I've used those skills ever since. But that's how I started in the industry. My career with Nike went on for uh, 21 years. The last four years uh, were probably the, the most um, uh, impactful on my life. And that was when uh, the Michael Jordan brand actually became a brand instead of just a collection of shoes. It was its own P&L. So uh, there was a lot of work to do there, but it was like, you know, having a startup, but having a lot of dad's money at the same time. So, but that's how I got into the industry. That's fascinating. And then how, how did you come to work for the different shoe manufacturers? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, um, it, 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 when you're 47 years old, I was at the time, and I decided to leave Nike with four kids. Um, I, I wanted to know if it was me or if it was Nike. Nike at that point was $12 billion and uh, it's $47 billion now. And I wanted to know if I was really any good or is it just that I worked for a good company. So I got an offer to work at Reebok and uh, the main competitor. And um, Nike was so happy for me, Philip, that they gave me a going away present of two days in federal court because I got sued because of my non-compete. The first of my four non-competes that I had to sit out on in my career. So that, that'll give you an idea how contentious the industry is. But as I went from brand to brand, I was always recruited to go to those brands. I never sought the employment. Mm. And, um, and, and at each stop, I learned a lot about the industry we were in, not just about the brands that I worked for. So uh, it's, a, it's an invaluable education. There's a difference, Philip, between experience and tenure. If you're at Nike for 21 years, that's called tenure. If you work for Nike, Reebok, Under Armour, and Asics, for example, that's called experience. So uh, I'm blessed to have had all those experiences. That's fascinating. And 
is there much difference? This sounds ignorant, but to me, a running shoe is a running shoe. And obviously they make, they all do the same basic technology to make athletes run faster. So how did the, these brands distinguish themselves in some way? Were you involved with the, the, the branding issues and then the globaliz- globalizing issues as well, internationalizing? Yeah, you know, it's interesting uh, you use the word internationalizing. Um, there's a difference, at least in my book, between global and international. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of commerce that's done between countries. And I, I, I would put that under the category, at least in my industry, of uh, being international. Global is this idea of being a big brand. So maybe, and I do, I, I always uh, denote the difference between a brand and a company. So um you're right. All the fa- I, when I went to the factories and on, so I, I ran the product engines at both uh, Reebok and Under Armour. When I went to the factories on different floors of the factories, other shoe companies, Nike or Saucony, other shoe companies were being built in the same factories. Are the shoes basically all the same? Not really. Some, some shoes are better than others. Um, but what separates the pack is the marketing. So I would always describe Nike for an example as a, uh, a, a marketing company that makes shoes on the side. And, um, you know, and then my, my last uh, run was at ASICS where they made beautiful product, maybe some of the best built product in, in the world, um, but they never really got the idea of branding. So um, that's, that's a big thing that you know, separates them. And, um, you know, and there's other little things too, when you get down into the design element of a product, um, it's not just the aesthetic and the visual and the optics of, of a product. It could be something subtle, like the use of color or a logo or it's interesting, all shoes, at least in the athletic industry, they all have names. It's like they're, they're a friend of yours, you know? So uh, uh, I've been involved in a lot of those. I think probably the best branded uh, company I ever worked for was uh, Air Jordan um, because it was basically named after a guy in the rest of the industry, it's not. So uh, that to me, is a Halley's Comet that there'll never be another brand like that. There hasn't been one like that in a long time, but branding um, makes you global. Um, uh, companies become a little bit more international. So there's nothing wrong with being an international company. But um, I'll give you an example. Global is this. You go to Disney World, and I'm sure you've been, Philip, maybe even recently. You look yes. like a, a fun, youthful guy. Um, if you, There's a, a ride called It's a Small World After All. Right. And if you, all you do is get in a boat, and it takes you through, and it's the same song over and over again. But the language changes. And that's what a global company is to me, is that it's the same song all over the world. It's just tweaked to, the, to a language that is understandable by people in their locale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. That's a very interesting distinction. Um, in the language business that, I, that I'm in, I run a 30-year-old translation company. Um, it global globalizing or globally globalizing and internationalizing are very misused terms. And if you ask someone what they mean, you know, each person has a slightly different definition. And we get not so much anymore, but we used to get um, emails. Can you, can you globalize our American brochure for Mexico? Um, and yes, what you mean is, can we translate your brochure into Spanish? And acculturated for Mexico. Yes. <laughs> right. Globalizing and internationalizing have other 
means meanings in the language business involving um, um, everything from currency and colors and naming and date formations and uh, you know whether you're using terms that are international like do you say football for soccer or do you use soccer for Americans? So, you know, there, there are diff many different issues like that. It's fascinating. Yeah, I think when uh, when I traveled, um, I took it upon myself to learn those notable differences. Now, I didn't immerse myself in every cultural, um, you know, idea that you know another country had. But if I were in the UK, for example, I always referred to it as football never soccer, you know, and, and I didn't do that so I could speak their language. I did it to honor my hosts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very, very wise to do that. It's, it's a great international lesson right there. Um, tell me about some of the most successful ventures that you've had or the great launches that you've done. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, um, the, the one that's the most outstanding is what I just mentioned earlier was Air Jordan. And um, here's what happened. This is going back uh, to 1998 or 1999. The brand actually wasn't doing well. Many listeners who follow Michael Jordan or the Jordan brand wouldn't believe that, but it wasn't doing well. He had just retired and um, a handful of us were charged with, how do you get this brand back on track before we folded the tents? And we realized that when you have great momentum, it's like a rocket ship ride but a rocket ship takes a longer time going up than it does coming down. So when you lose that momentum, you really have to put your foot on the brakes. So um, we introduced a product line and uh, my idea, going back to my days as a tech rep 20 years earlier and wandering all over the state of Florida and looking and listening, I didn't go to the store owners with this new product line. I went out to the kids in the street, went to all the major markets and visited oh. with the kids. And they didn't like the line, but they kept asking for this one shoe that had been released about 10 or 12 years earlier. So when we decided to re-release that shoe, which gave birth to this whole, you know, sneaker head, sneaker collectors thing that goes on now, um, I brought it back out to those kids and I said to them, hey, I'm going to show you something, but I don't want you to tell anybody that I showed you this because if you tell anybody, I'm going to lose my job. So I would show them the shoe. And the idea was for them to tell everybody. It's like telling a kid, don't spill your milk, right? So the next thing you knew with absolutely no marketing, there were kids lined up at stores all over America, um, you know, waiting for this shoe, the doors to open to their favorite store so they could go buy this shoe. And it was in limited supply. It's the oldest trick in the book, supply and demand. Um, I called it evaporation versus liquidation. Um, you want to, anybody who makes a product out there or sells a product, you want it to evaporate, not liquidate. Because in my business, in a lot of businesses, you don't make money on what you sell, you lose money on what you don't sell. So that gave birth to this, not just a, a, a regenerated a brand that was struggling at the time, but what it did was it came, it came up with a new practice that every other company tried to mimic and they, they still do today. So that, that was really important to me. It's fascinating. It's a great philosophy. Great way to do it. And of course, you didn't lose your job. That was that was the best part as well. Um, did you take the brand international right away or was it primarily domestic? So that's a great point. And it's one of the big lessons I've learned. And I still think it's an important lesson. Um, we, in our bravado, now we, after two years, we had great success with the brand. We decided to go to Europe and we figured, okay, let's just unleash this 
wild animal and in all these other countries. They're going to love it. They hated it. They hated the idea of it. And it goes back to your comment, too, about, um, you know, is it football or is it soccer? You know, basketball is not as popular in other parts of the world as it is in America. It's now popular. The NBA has globalized itself, and I think they've done it very shrewdly and strategically. But uh, we got, you know, we got the door slammed in our face in a lot of places. But the second lesson I learned was, again, forget the store owners. We went and tried to meet the cool kids in each market and tried to get them to be ambassadors for our product. And it would take time. You know, you have to crawl before you walk. Um, You know, Nike used to call it in the olden days, word of foot advertising. So we gave out free shoes to kids and it did it create a spark, but it took several years before it took off. I, I also learned that many companies, if they go someplace and they try something and it fails, they give up. And that's the one big lesson I learned at Nike. No, that means you keep trying until you get it. And, um, so it took a while, but it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't like instant success. It's also um, it's something I've seen with a lot of Americans when they go overseas to any country is that they tend to think if they love something, then my God, the rest of the world must love it too. It's, it's a little bit of the you know, the blinders on Americans, you know, so um, uh, it doesn't work that way. I think um, I've learned over the years that um, you have to um, start as small as you can and consider it planting a seed as opposed to hoping you can go up. Look, my, one of my favorite stories is Ralph Lauren and how they grew their business in China. It, you know, Ralph Lauren, um, you know, at first they were smart. They set up distributors, right, and uh, carefully selected them. It was a lot easier back then, you know, 25, 30 years ago. But then ultimately, as the brand grew, uh, Ralph took it back under their, you know, their own control. But it took decades to get the brand to just, you know, get to a place where it was not only popular and iconic and successful, but profitable. I didn't realize it took decades. That's fascinating. And... And that's a wonderful lesson, especially in China. Um, Americans have a very short fuse and very short time, um, what's the word, time frame. You know, we want instant results in this quarter or this week or this month, whatever. Um, and the Chinese with their 5,000 years of history know that they can just wait things out. Um, and that most Westerners, especially Americans, don't have the patience to wait for decades for something to turn profitable. So it's wonderful that Ralph Lauren had that vision and that tenacity to do so. To stay. Hey, the tenacity, I, you, you bring up a really good point. Um, two things that you know um, really strike all Americans is one is instant gratification takes too long. And, and in America, uh, attention is the scarcest resource. So uh, if we don't get, you know, if we don't get rich quick, if we can't clip, uh, click our heels and snap our fingers and win the lottery today, you know, it's considered another failure, but um, it's really not. You have to be patient and take the time. Um, I love that instant. What did you say? Instant gratification takes too long? Yes. <laughs> That's great. I mean, think about you when you would w- try to hail a cab in Manhattan. You know, 15 years ago, you, there was no time frame on it. You just hope you'd get one. Now people get upset when they go on their app and get an Uber and it says it's going to take eight minutes. People are so upset they have to wait eight minutes. So, yes. yeah, how oh, dreadful. I know. What would actually people do for eight minutes besides perhaps take out a magazine or a book or read something or read emails or whatever? 
Yes. Look at their phone. Look at their phone. Exactly. Um, as you've taken your, your various athletic shoe brands global, what kind of experiences did you have in different parts of the world? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And uh, the one thing that's to note, and this is probably true of any industry, in the athletic industry, um, even though the industry has set standards and timeframes and timelines and there's certain sports, et cetera, every company runs differently. You know, uh, New Balance, which I'm a huge fan of up in, in uh, Boston, they're, they're privately held. So they have a different way of doing business. Brooks Shoe Company, which is uh, up in what state of Washington and right outside Seattle, they're owned by Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett. So they have a different business model. Nike, Reebok, Under Armour, publicly traded companies. So you're at the mercy of, you know, pleasing um, analysts and shareholders every, every four quarters. So having that is almost a, a, a restriction on how you do business, or maybe not a restriction like New Balance might not have. It, 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 it tends to drive how you go about, you know, uh, getting into other markets outside of the U.S., um, I will tell you that um, when I joined ASICS in 2015, they were, there was a distributor model. So the, uh, the United States was a, a wholly owned subsidiary of ASICS, which as I mentioned earlier, is a Japanese company. And Canada, Mexico, and all of South America were not. Uh, well, actually Brazil was a, a wholly owned subsidiary. The, so there was third party distributors. And when I went down to meet these third-party distributors or up Canada, um, I realized that they did things their way as opposed to follow at least, you know, the, the, the branding ideas of the parent company. And, and they're, they're, uh, they were very proud that they knew more about their market than you did. Well, that's good. You should know more about the market than I do. But what I also realized, um, it wasn't, we weren't getting anywhere. We were just selling stuff as opposed to expanding the brand. So um, I had to change um, uh, six distributors, Mexico, Canada, Peru, Chile, Argentina, and Colombia, and bring them into wholly owned subsidiaries. And the first thing I did was, rather than tell them how it should be done, I wanted them to do it the way they wanted to do it, but just, I just wanted them to know where the swim lanes were and where the barriers are. So my attitude, my, my point of view is really, um, you can bring a strategy to a foreign country, but you need to, you need to surrender and relinquish the tactics to the professionals that you've chosen in each of those markets. It sounds hard. You'll sleep with one eye open. You'll worry about it. But if you pick the right partners, to join your brand, um, they will ultimately do the right thing. So um, you can have the strategy, but you need to relinquish the tactics. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's um, very much what other guests have echoed also. And what, it, what we don't have in this, well, it's not true. I'll say it, say it, it's not totally true. Um, in the United States, you, you can do business um, informally with any, anyone with whom you have not even met. You can be in San Diego and call someone in, in Penobscot, Maine and just order something and, you know, it happens. Um, but in, in most, parts, most parts of the world, actually, uh, Latin America, certainly the Middle East, Europe, Asia, Africa, certainly East Asia as well, um, what, what's critical is trust and rapport and to make sure that 
um, you're working with an agent, a distributor, employees, whoever they are, um, where you trust that they will do what ultimately the mission is, but they may do it in a totally different way than you you do it, than you're accustomed to doing it. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. I, I'll give you an example. When, um, when I was at Under Armour and they had launched footwear, and it's an apparel company by nature competing against footwear giants, but they launched footwear and then I came in because the, the first launch was not a success and they needed to relaunch the brand, which was the biggest undertaking of my career. The first thing I did, aside from rebuild the team and replace 75 people out of 104, um, is I went to my partners in China and I called them my partners because, and what I didn't realize until I got there is that some of my predecessors didn't call them partners and didn't treat them like partners. And it was way too transactional. So on my very first visit, I didn't go on a business trip. I went to go and meet them, let them get to know me and me get to know them. We didn't talk about you know, uh, what the next 18 months of orders would look like. We didn't talk about it. And we just, I just wanted them to know that I'm a 51, 49 guy, Philip. So what that means is I'm going to be 51% my company, whatever name company here, right? Whether it's Nike, Adidas, whatever, I don't know. Um, but I'm going to allow you on the other side of the table to be 49%. And occasionally, we can flop that. I'll be 49% and you can be 51%. The point being is that 2% that two difference in the middle, that trough in the middle, that's where you do business. So the closer you are, it's only 2% away, is where you can get things done and there usually can be mutual outcomes. If you go in and you think you're the big guy and uh, you're going to be 75% you and 25% the others, you're so far away from even getting the other party to listen that you'll never get anything done. And if you do get something done, it'll be incredibly short-term and it won't be sustainable and strategic. That is extremely true. Yes. Um, North American business, especially North American business in general, is very transactional. And the mistake that a lot of Americans make or a lot of people make is um, go and, you know, just um, fly their top business think it's going to happen and then fly home and all of that. And it very often takes many uh, dinners, lunches, sometimes multiple visits just to get to know people. And you talk about their families and their, you know, what's important to them and perhaps books and sports and art and other issues, but never business. Uh, that comes later. Right. And, and I think that's the way many other companies do business, but I, I don't actually think that's the way American companies should do business with each other. I, I do think it's, it's a very noble business practice. And you talk about the Chinese for 5,000 years. Um, you know, the, the Japanese are the same. They have centuries of a way of doing business and understanding that and embracing that is important. It doesn't mean you can't do business your way. I mean, my goodness, I've been to um, Russia and they do business a certain way. Mm-hmm. And uh, most, of the, most of the way they do business would be considered illegal, if not immoral in our country. Right. So it doesn't mean that you have to condone it. You just need to be aware of it so that, you know, you, you can pick and choose your spots. Yes. Um, the same is true in China. There, there's some things that are very transactional in, in China by certain Chinese businessmen, but you have to understand the culture of the people you're working with first before mm-hmm. you get the permission to do business with them. Very, very true. Yes. Um, tell me more about doing business in Russia. What were some of your experiences there? 
and women. Well, yeah, Russia. Um, Russia is is a, an amazing place. Um, you know, I, it, it's it's it, it. You could see the Red Square, and you could see centuries old art in some of these these old old buildings, and then all of a sudden there's a Louis Vuitton pop up shop in the middle of Red Square. Right. So it was it was the biggest contradiction I've ever seen in my life. Um, I did learn how to drink vodka. Um, and, um, I can tell you that the vodka we drink in this country is nothing on Russian vodka, but I can also tell you that, um, sometimes you have to let your uh, Russian opponent win mm. and you know, they, there has to be, it's, they choose by it's win lose for them. So sometimes you have to let them win. You also, they respect you more if you stand up to them because they do like to, you know, bully a little bit and, and chest stomp, at least in my industry. Um, they like to be more powerful than your brand. They do the 7525 rather than the 5149. And sometimes you just have to roll over and play dead a little bit, you know, to get what you want. Um, I also realized too that um, maybe not so much in Russia, but in, in other in other countries, you know, um, the idea of, you know, paying somebody you know, a gift as they call it, you know, which is uh, not allowable, you know, by many companies and certainly, you know, not in international trade, that that is not something, even though we might consider that illegal, uh, the other countries, some of them think that that's just a way of doing business. That's how it's done. And you have to know those nuances. Are you talking about a bri what we would call a bribe or a physical gift? Like a well, you call it a bribe. Yeah, it's a, it's a bribe. Well, some of the gifts actually are a form of bribery, but you know, it's, it's the fit there. Sometimes there's been money offered, particularly to the people who represent American companies in the factories. And it, it really compromises the young people who are trying to build their careers, you know, in these factories as expatriates. And, um, you know, you just have to learn that while that might be daunting and it might look enticing to you in the long run, it's the worst thing you could ever do. Not only because you could jeopardize your career, but it also sets a different tone for the business relationship. What about in uh, developing countries where, again, it's in Muslim world where it's, it, it is much more common. It is common to give physical bribes, if not, uh, I'm sorry, uh, monetary bribes, if not physical bribes. In some countries, um, like in Japan, for example, when you visit someone, you you would normally, well, you often would bring a bottle of whiskey, for example. And that's not a bribe per se. It's just like a, a gift, a token gift. Um, but you're talking about much larger gifts and much larger sums, I presume. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, I think the way, if I were to coach uh, a company that was going to expand, you know, globally, and they, again, not only knowing the cultural nuances and, you know, and honoring them, but you know, if you get into those situations, you know, and they do put you in a compromising position, you just need to step away and take a deep breath and, you know, maybe politely end the meeting and come back another day. But that's why companies like particularly American companies, when they go to developing countries, they use a third party to develop their business. So much like Ralph Lauren did 30 years ago, or maybe it's more than 30 years ago when he established his business in China. You know, you use a third party so you can stay out of, of these, this type of, uh, these types of conflicts. That's fascinating. That's great. Um, I know some companies charge, um, 
they wouldn't call it a commission. They would charge, call it a consulting fee or something like that and tack that on to the invoice as a way to obtain their required payments so forth. Yeah. Now in America, I'll give you an example of a bribe. And so you live in Philadelphia and early in my career, I was in sales for Nike and I was in the mid-Atlantic area. And um, th there were so many store owners um, in Philadelphia that didn't have a Nike account that they wanted to have a Nike account. So they thought the best thing to do would be put five or $10,000 of cash in an envelope and hand it to a 25 year old sales rep. You know, so that, that's bribery. But, you know, I guess the, the reason I mention it is that um, it's, it's, it's really, it's um, short-lived. It's, it's just something to stay away from. Fascinating. Um, what kind of cultural issues have you encountered? Uh, other cultural issues. You've talked about some, you know, purely business cultural issues, um, but in, uh, in terms of other, you know, pure cultural issues. Have you? Yeah, uh, I'll tell you, on, on uh, my second trip to Moscow, um, you'll notice if you go over there, and this is about only about six or seven years ago, um, that they don't accept American Express simply because it's called American Express. So we, I was out with one of uh, my colleagues and we were going to try and find something to eat. And the first thing that you try to do is try to find a, a menu in English, which is almost impossible. And the second thing is you always make sure they have the visa sticker, visa card sticker in the door window. So we went in, we found a pub, which was lovely. We want to have a couple of beers and then something to eat. And we saw the visa sticker. We went in and we sat there and... Um, when they realized that we were American, um, we wanted to now pay for our drinks. And the guy said, cash only. And we put, well, it's Visa. No, today only, cash only. So I'm like, no, my colleague, my colleague was then escorted by two guys to an ATM machine. And he was gone for nearly 30 minutes. He said he didn't even know if he had transferred all of his money to an offshore account somewhere. He didn't know because of all the buttons and everything. And while I sat in the bar, I was joined by two other guys that sat on either side of me. So, um, you know, to remind me that I just need to stay put until he came back with cash. So um, I think there is, and, and it's shame, it's increased, uh, particularly over the last several years, there's a disdain, you know, for America and Americans. Um, and uh, it's, it's getting a little bit out of control. And it's to a point where the best way to avoid that is not by avoiding the fact that you're an American and saying you're Canadian, like some people do. The best way to avoid that is just to be gracious to the people on their terms when you get over there. The, their nuances, you know, their cultural things, things that are important to them. You mentioned little things like bringing gifts. Every time I went to Japan, I had to bring, uh, you know, fine wine from California. And I always had to buy those sea chocolates in the, in the airport because those were very popular. And it, it was, that was so, that was so well received that if there's any tension or any misgiving, it's, it's automatically gone just by the simple nature of, of a token of your appreciation for being there. Um, you were talking about Russia just now. And of course we now, because of the Ukraine invasion, we of course have effectively a boycott of, of Russia. Um, does that apply in other countries you've been to or some similar stories like that? Um, I think, you know, you got to remember, yeah, let's take tourism. So for years, Americans go to other countries and it fascinates me. I'll give you a New York city example. It fascinates me that times square is just populated with tourists from all over the country. 
Right. And then, and then they all go to Applebee's to eat. You think they would go to, you know, a New York restaurant, but it's the same thing in foreign countries. I remember I was, we were doing market uh, trip in, uh, in Paris and there were two tourists and you could tell they were American because they had on baggy cargo shorts and they had fanny packs on, but you could really tell that um, they were tourists because they were looking for a McDonald's and they kept asking, you know, French people who probably spoke English, but ignored them. And, um, and then, you know, but here's the best part about Americans when they go there, not all Americans, of course, but they, when they go there, they realize they don't understand your language, but Americans tend to think they're deaf too. So they always raise their voice, excuse me, you know, right. like that and make it more understandable. So I, I do think, um, you know, America has, you know, wonderful, wonderful things that we're all proud of and we should be. And America has helped a lot of developing countries. But I think it really still comes down to, like I've been saying this whole talk, Philip, is that understanding and respecting the cultural uh, nuances of every, of every country you go to. And first of all, it's not only fun to research before you go, whether a businessman or a tourist, but also can open up tons of doors for you. Mm. That's very true. Um, when you opened a new market or went to a new country, uh, how did you learn the, uh, the, the cultural nuances? Did you have a staff that told you or did you talk to people when you, when you arrived? Yes, yeah, so that, that's an excellent point. Um, uh, when I was going to change every leadership and everything in countries I hadn't frequented in my past, like Chile, Peru, and Argentina, um, I made sure my first two days there, I was with um, my, my leader and, and his team and not only get to know them, but I asked them to take me around the market and show it to me in their, from their eyes, not from American visiting, you know, Lima or Colombia or something or Bogota. So, and I think that's really important. Um, and then um, the other thing too is, um, I, I'll tell you a quick little story. When uh, I was named the CEO of ASICS, my son Patrick and I got together in Manhattan. He lived there for a while and he, he said to me one time after a couple of years, he goes, so dad, what does a CEO do? And I like, like, really, like that's, that's a real job. And I said, Patrick, a CEO does four things. I look, I listen, I think, and then I decide. So I think the best way that I've ever educated myself in any of these countries is what I learned in my very first job in, at Nike at 24 years old was to be in the marketplace. And there's an old saying, if a salesman were meant to speak, he or she would have two mouths and one ear. I think the best way to learn is just observe and listen and take it all in. And that, that's been my greatest guide in any role I've ever had, never mind any country I've ever traveled to. Yeah, that's fascinating and great advice. Um, are there any countries that you've been to that have been perhaps shocking or incredibly surprising in how the business is done and what you were expecting? I don't know that I was shocked because I did take some painful stakes to figure out, you know, how business is done. Um, I think I was, um, I, I guess I, I was more surprised at how willing other countries were to do things on, on the terms of an American business, which I always thought they, they never should have been. I think you should do it on, on your terms. Like I said, it's, you know, you have, you should have local heroes. I'll give you a, a wonderful story. I went to Brazil and I was with, um, ASICS at the time. And, uh, just a few, um, years earlier, I was, I had been at Under Armour. So I went into this gigantic 
monument to itself of a store called Under Armour in um, Sao Paulo. And um, I, 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 I was like, oh my God, this is Under Armour trying to shove America down its throat. So in the store, the, the, the store was actually two stories, but the walls went up two stories. And on one wall, they had a, pic, a picture of uh, Giselle Bunjan, who many people know as married to Tom Brady, the famous model. And I thought that was great because Under Armour had Tom Brady under contract. And they, here they are. They were, his wife is Brazilian, was completely, uh, she's like a national hero in Brazil. But then on the other wall, they had a huge mural the same size of Tom Brady. And this is the blinders that some companies have on that. Nobody in Brazil cares about Amer the NFL or American football. And, and, I, and I think, you know, um, that, that's when you could tell, I could always tell a company that goes in there and does it themselves or a company that goes in there and uses a third party so that you can maybe, you know, soften the edges a little bit of how you insert a piece of Americana into another culture. That's fascinating. It's a great story. Thank you. Um, with all of your international experience, if you've had, if you could tell your past self some current advice, what would you tell yourself? Um, first of all, manage my expectations. Uh, second of all, um, as I mentioned earlier, be a real active listener and make sure you have time to think before you make a decision. And the third one is a really important point. Take in the sights, experience the local culture. I remember I went with a guy from Timberland his first time in Paris and we're going by the Eiffel Tower in a taxi and he's on at the time his Blackberry. And I, I was just livid with him. I said, look, you know, and I do think that's really important, you know, because um, it's, the, the rest of the world is absolutely stunningly beautiful and has many, many things to offer that you can never find in America. Just look at the old ruins, you know, in, in Peru. You're sitting at a beautiful outdoor restaurant, very modern restaurant, and you're looking at these ruins that have been there for centuries. It's right. fascinating to me. So I do think, I don't think, uh, I think American businessmen and women tend to think they need to get, go there. And they need to get home as fast as they can. I get that when you're trying to take care of your family. But I think we built in this mentality that if we actually enjoy ourselves while are there, we're cheating our company. They think we're having fun and we're not doing our jobs. And it, it's, it's just the opposite. So make sure you do get to take in all of these wonderful cultural things that we just don't have in our country. That's great. Yeah, um, I, I make a personal distinction. Um, when I travel between observing and absorbing. And many people, um, a typical tourist would, ob would observe, of course, and that's fine. Um, but relatively few take the time to absorb the local culture and understand, um, you know, the, the nuances, of course, the culture, uh, the food. It's not so much the food, it's, it's the history, the, the ruins, as you say, um, the way people think and behave and react and the language and why and, and the, the um, you know, the, the traits and so forth. So all of that is to me really critical. I remember, uh, I won't name the company, but um, they had one company that, um, that I worked for where they were completely, a, a meeting ended abruptly 
And everybody walked out of the room because our team showed, you know, our, our leather shoes. Well, in some countries, you know, pointed the soles of their shoes, the, the soles of their shoes to the, to the other side, right? And there's other countries that, you know, if you have that we, you, we use in the outdoor industry, pigskin and other different types of leathers oh, yeah. and they violate sacred religious beliefs. Yes. And, yeah. And so you, you just, if you don't know that before you go over there, you shouldn't be traveling globally right. and internationally. So, um, but, but uh, you're observe, uh, observing and, uh, absorbing, I think is, is brilliant. I'm going to steal that one from you, Philip. Please. Yes. That would be fine. Um, yes. And for our listeners who don't know, um, one should never, even if the sole of your shoe is not made of big skin, uh, you should absolutely never sole show the sole of your foot to to someone who fit in a, in a Muslim country and probably in, in Israel as well, in a Jewish country. Um, and Americans tend to cross their legs because we've got so much space here. American, American men especially cross their legs and point the sole of their foot to someone else next to them. And that's incredibly insulting. Yeah, it's a, it's, you, you have to learn the discipline um, uh, and I had to keep reminding myself cause I'm a fidgety guy, um, to keep both feet on the ground. And I never put my hands, uh, I always put my hands, if they were on the table, they were folded in front of me. I never mm -hmm. put my elbows on the table and sometimes my hands were just on my lap. So it's less imposing. So is, you know, I found, I found, you know, learning some of those things the hard way, but nonetheless learning them, I found that fun. And, and that's what I enjoyed about international. Like, for example, you go into a, a sushi restaurant in America and people are trying to eat sushi, you know, with chopsticks. You don't in Japan. You pick it up with your fingers and put it in your mouth. We had some Japanese people working for us in our Irvine, California office at ASICS. And every time we go to a restaurant in America to show you how they respect the customs, I would see them eat their sushi with chopsticks. And I said to him, why do you do that? He goes, I just don't want to insult the Americans. This is the way they do it. So I'll do it the way they do it. You know? So and I just found all of those things a lot of fun. And what's also great too, is you, you can pick up not only some of these customs and trades and business practices, but I think it's, it's great to bring home to your family and to your children and to broaden their worlds. Cause not everybody is as lucky as the people on this call to be able to travel globally on somebody else's dime, you know, and not only do business, but see amazing things, eat amazing food and meet amazing people. Very true. Uh, you mentioned about eating sushi with chopsticks. Um, I, I like asking people when I'm doing a, a presentation or something, um, if you're in an enclosed room, uh, point, uh, point to the restroom. And, you know, people will often with their fingers point this way. Um, and I would tend to point, I'm sorry, I say point to the nearest restroom. Um, and I would point if I knew the layout of the building, I would point straight up um, and do it this way. Um, because the, the restroom, I'm sorry, I, I said that wrong. Um, if, if, I'm, if I ask, if you're in a room with Americans and you ask people, point to the nearest bathroom and you know they'll, they'll point to the nearest men's room or restroom, whatever, and I'll say, no, the nearest bathroom is in the hotel across the street. Bathroom is a very American word, you know, in, in other countries, it's a men's room, a, a restroom, a loo, a, a, the toilet, whatever one says, the, the WC, 
But the bathroom is where you take a bath, obviously. And, you know, to use this stupid American word abroad is, is very confusing. And pointing, of course, um, I presume you, you saw this, especially in Latin America, you point with your whole hand, with the palm of your hand, uh, with the fingers together, the palm of your hand, uh, and point basically outward, um, as opposed to one finger, which is what Americans do, because especially in Latin America, pointing with one finger is extremely insulting. Mm -hmm. And don't ever make the okay sign in certain countries. Like like this, okay. don't want to make the okay sign. That's uh, in some countries. That's a that's a you know a slander against another person. I'll tell you a cute story about uh, going to um, Korea, and uh, we were working with a small factory there. And um, whenever you would go there, you would be always welcome. They'd have a, a big marquee outside with your names on it, and everybody would line up and greet you when you walked in. And then when lunch came, and these were all working lunches, and keep in mind, they're in factories, so there's nothing glamorous about it. But when they brought lunch in, they would bring in a traditional Korean lunch. But then in order to, you know, please the American guests, they would bring in Pizza Hut, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, and here, was the, here was the cute part. We all would get up, and this is the way I coach my team, and we actually enjoyed eating the local food. Right. And, but they wouldn't serve themselves. Our hosts wouldn't serve themselves until we served ourselves first. Mm -hmm. And then after they saw that we were all seated and ready to eat, they would go serve themselves and they would go straight for the pizza and the Kentucky fried chicken. So I, I do think we have to remember that America has had a big impact on a lot of these countries in, in a really nice way too, that we're able to take our, our big global brands and, and make them local. I think that's you know an important thing that we do, but it's just funny. We didn't feel like we had to eat the Korean fare, but we wanted to, but they would, they went right for the American. So it was just really a cute story. I'll tell you another cute story. My very first, um, I lived in Japan as a, as a senior in, co in um, college. Yes. And, um, my first, I lived with my host family in Tokyo. My first day down to, with my host family, um, my host mother prepared a breakfast of bacon and eggs and black tea, toast, and, and butter. And, okay, fine. And I said, thank you, and so forth. And, uh, and the second morning I came down, it was the same thing. Bacon and eggs and uh, uh, toast and black tea, uh, toast and butter and black tea. And on the third day, I finally said, um, Okasan, which is mother in Japanese. It's what you just people. Um, you know, I've been in Japan for three or four months already. I know how to eat Japanese food. Um, and she looked at me very quizzically and she said, what do you mean Japanese food? We've been eating this food for 30 years. <laughs> oh, yes. American food has become Japanese food. And yeah, I know, right? It's crazy. Well, thank you so much. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we close? Yeah, you know, um, I've had a, a good career. And as I mentioned in the beginning, Philip, you know, seeing the world, getting a free education, then... Um, um, having this career and, and an exciting industry. It's not just about footwear and apparel, and it's not even just about sports. And a lot of times the athletic industry is about pop culture. Um, it really, you know, as the times go, so does this industry. It's an industry that makes itself up as it goes along. There's no college in the land that teaches it. Mm -hmm. But as I look at um, young people today trying to start their own brand, I have, um, and I lecture on this, and I'll leave it before my four pillars for starting your own brand. Number one would be, um, pick a name, but pick a name 
that means something and pick a name that is going to be unique. So Joe Montana and Derek Jeter were born with names that, you know, should be used by athletes and they, they just sounds natural and normal. On the other hand, in this country, you know, um, with the three of the most iconic fashion brands, you probably wouldn't name your child after Ralph, Calvin and Tommy. So names do matter. Look at, look at clever names like Google. Google is now a verb. Look at Uber. I mean, these are names that meant something else now mean something else. So picking a name is important. The second one is don't try to build a better mousetrap. Um, try to solve a problem. The best brands come from solving a problem. Uber's a great example. Um, you know, they weren't out there to try to put yellow taxis out of business. They solved the problem. The problem was Johnny has a car. Susie doesn't have a car. Susie needs to get occasionally from point A to point B. Why can't, you know, Johnny or Tommy, whatever, you know, lend his car or take Susie for a fee? So that's how Uber started with solving a problem. The third thing is make sure that you build a culture to your brand because no matter where you go in the world, your brand will have a culture and it will, it will, it will make itself known beyond words or gestures to your foreign hosts or guests. And uh, Nike has its own culture and um, Adidas has a different culture. A lot of it is geographic or whatever, but make sure you have a culture and make sure that the culture is, um, you know, is something that is noticeable, but is also a point of differentiation for you. And the last pillar is the best one. Um, nobody cares about your brand until they know what your brand cares about. So you need to stand for something. You need to have a point of view. And I'm not talking about being a gigantic bank and planting a million, you know, small trees in the rainforest that cost them a million dollars. That's nothing. That's checking the box. Stand for something. And uh, and because your consumers all over the world are going to want to know what you believe in and what you stand for. So that's my quick back of the envelope advice for any young entrepreneurs out there or, or people who want to build a brand, not only in this country, but any country. Thank you, Gene. That was absolutely brilliant advice. Greatly appreciate it. And I should add here to number one about the naming. Um, when when you do in, when you do come up with a product name or a company name or and a tagline, absolutely hire a language agency such as ours or any other professional firm to check it in 10, 10 or twenty common languages. Because when you go abroad, um, you do not want to have invested millions of dollars in your branding only to find out that the brand name does not work. And one of my favorite examples of this is Ford Pinto, which uh, took the Pinto name, which was an American name, and took it to Brazil, totally oblivious to the fact that Pinto in Brazilian slang means, shall we say, male genitals. And the best name for a car. Oh, I know. I listen, I'm sure you have a million of those stories, but that's right. Choosing a name, you're right. Get a language expert. Get you, Philip. You should, you right. will you will keep people out of um out of uh, making a big mistake. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Gene McCarthy, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure to gain your insights. Um, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, and this has been Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Our website is A-U-E-R-B-A-C-H-I-N-T-L.com. And I hope you will join us again next week for another edition of Global Gurus and their wonderful stories of international business. 